Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Keith Newton on the show. Keith is an incredible woodworker and a true artisan making some of the most beautiful pieces of furniture I've ever seen in person. He's been a woodworker since his early teen years. Over the course of a lifetime, he has honed his skills. He always strives for harmony with the wood and the peace the wood finally becomes. Keith chooses his logs carefully and orients them on a sawmill for the maximum benefit the log will yield. The cut slabs dry for three and a half years. Logs are urban salvage and farm field pullouts. It is important to him that the wood he chooses has been saved from a trip to the biomass plant. Always driven to try new things, he taught himself to make violins. It was in that self-imposed tutelage he perfected his finishing techniques. Over the course of many years, Keith has accumulated many machines and tools instrumental to his woodworking. Sanding and surfacing machines, elbow grease, and a fortune in sandpaper are the formula behind his smooth finishes. Keith also has outstanding veneer and pressing capabilities for lovely panels, chests, and cabinets. His work predominantly incorporates live edge. He is inspired by the beauty in nature and wants to bring that natural feeling that the outdoors brings. Keith works from his studio shop on 2.5 acres in Fresno, California. His many dogs are his constant companions and will greet you at the gate. This is one of the rare interviews that I recorded in person. I'm glad I was able to because I was able to see Keith's amazing shop and his amazing work. It's not often that you're with someone who's so truly connected with their craft that you can feel it in just talking to them. And Keith is one of those people. I really know you're going to enjoy this conversation, and Baker will take us there. Let's go meet Keith. Fresno's best. Keith, where do you like to eat in Fresno? I like to eat at Takumi. Okay. Over on Shaw. I like to eat sushi. Oh, like sashimi. A, is that West West Fresno? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. right there. It's like by Costco out there a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I've been there once. What What do you like there? I like everything. The her whole menu is amazing. I usually have the baked mussels and that spicy edamame. And what else do I have? Sometimes I'll have like a twenty piece sashimi, and green tea, not sweetened. M- M- my wife eats with me. Um, we've been together for 45 years coming up Thursday. So, wow. Congratulations. Yeah, we, we're like twins. You never see one of us without seeing the other one. <laughs> you know, when I moved to Fresno and started going to sushi restaurants, I found a lot of people ordered stuff that was like deep fried and <laughs> oh, yeah. had all sorts of sauces and components. Is that is that for you or are you more like the straight fish with the rice? I like it all. You know, I like to cook it. And I like to eat it when someone else cooks it so I don't have to clean up. And I guess I like to eat new foods, ethnic foods, all kinds, particularly crazy about Asian food. Like, I mean, there's such, it's such a big world. I've just been reading this book about the history of Chinese food, and I feel like I don't know anything. You yeah. know, I feel like some of the things I've had in the United States are just, just like the tip of the iceberg of this huge continent that I don't know much about. I had to, I spent a year in Thailand when I was in the Air Force, and I had to learn to avoid MSG because it hit me really hard. (laughs) You know, I I thought the whole time I was in Thailand that I had dysentery, and I I didn't put the two things together. So for a year, I was just constantly hammering myself. In fact, I was learning to cook, and I was throwing this stuff into the mix because I didn't know that was a culprit for me. Wow. And I spent... I, I thought that I was going to die on the can. You know, that was just yeah. one of those things. You, you hear about your fellow GIs warning you about eating off base and living off base. I didn't stay a single day on base. And they all thought you would die if you went off base. You know, we're just like 60 miles from Vietnam yeah. during 74, yeah. 73 and 74. And I just couldn't sleep with... 50 other guys in the room, you know, all making their own noises and and snoring and talking and gambling and just being people, you know. And so I opted for a little bungalow that was just straight off the base. The very first uh, bungalow I had was $25 a a month. I stayed there for like two months. What 
ran me out was when the monsoons came. Uh, I woke up one morning to my boot floating by, just kind of just <laughs> floating right next to my bed. Yeah. And I realized that not all bungalows were created equal. And the reason they were on those stilts is because uh, the floods come every year. Yeah. Wow. Well, I just drove here in some rain, but it's not even close to, I'm sure, what you experienced yeah. in the monsoons. Yeah. I want to start kind of in a previous life, if you will, working with bees, because I'm interested in this. I had one beekeeper on in the past, but I'm curious, for you, what was the most enjoyable part of working with bees? I suppose the, 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 probably the, the most fun part about beekeeping was catching swarms. Okay. When I first started keeping bees, I think it was 70, uh, it was common for beekeepers to get started by catching wild bees because wild bees were everywhere. Yeah. And I think I caught 300 swarms my first year. And it was really kind of cool. You kind of become the Pied Piper of bees. <laughs> I remember one time I, I, I kind of got the hang of it after the first few hundred, you know. Yeah. And I went to a, a, a report of bees on a sidewalk or on a grass or something. Yeah. And I got there and there, big circle of bees, three feet in diameter. And usually that means that the queen has died and that's where she landed. So that's where they followed her. I see. And so really all they're looking for is a dark place. And so I went to her address and all I had was I had used up all my equipment and all I had was her giving me an old dog food bag. And so I just laid the dog food bag down beside him and I flicked a couple of bees towards the dog food bag. Didn't have any gear on, just flicked a couple of bees. <laughs> and then they all turned around and start marching towards this dark spot. And I, I immediately went, get in there. Yeah. And the woman heard me and she goes, that was amazing. I didn't know they could march on orders. You know, it was just so silly. It was very silly. But it wasn't unusual for us to hit 10 swarms in a day. Wow. during this peak season and it was from the time of the the orange bloom or the manzanita bloom uh clear up until may and so it was like t two months and it would be every day we had our name with the fire department and the police department and all of the spca anybody who would be an official that somebody might call. And we had an ad in the paper. And we caught 300 of them a couple of years in a row. Wow. But now I'm not sure you could catch a single one, maybe if you're lucky. Because there's been several, I would say, commercially induced phenomena that have wreaked havoc on the, the Apis mellifera, the, the honeybee that we know. Uh, one of them's probably from the tracheal mite that came and just really wreaked havoc. That really took the wild bees out and took a lot of commercial bees out. And then the, the varroa mite, you know, th that little scourge is still on us too. And since then there's been viruses discovered and, and there's always been more downward pressure on beekeeping than the industry can support unless you're just really a good beekeeper and I, I don't think i was ever a good beekeeper i was a pretty good behaver that's kind of how beekeepers discern beekeepers and behavers by that i mean i could buy colonies and watch them die yeah you know or i could raise bees and watch them die i could buy package bees and watch them die any way you looked at it it's off a cliff every winter, you know. Yeah. Well, and I think what I hear you talking about is working with nature, but also, you know, the frailty of it. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's going to come up when we're talking about walnut and different things as oh, well. Sure. But I, I, I want to, before we kind of jump into specific woodworking questions I have, I, I was curious to talk with you about education, woodworking as a profession, but also like how, you, how you're trained. And, you know, schools are doing things like, you know, in class kind of, you know, shop classes, if you will. There's also a lot of apprenticeship programs, 
community colleges are doing different things. What do you think is kind of the best direction? If you're looking for a career in woodworking, do you think it's you think you're going to learn it in a classroom? Do you think you're going to learn it through a mentor? Do you think you're going to learn some kind of combination or in a trade? That's a tough one. I guess what worked for you? I don't know if it matters where you get it. Okay. As long as you get it. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of all roads lead to Rome, you know. If you're determined to do something, it doesn't there's nothing that can stand in your way. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed reading your blog post about your self-imposed apprenticeship around violins. <laughs> what does that look like? In other words, can you unpack what that meant, like a self-imposed apprenticeship program with a violin to learn how to build one? I think it was hubris that told me to build a violin. Because yeah. I had been successful at doing other woodworking projects, and I wanted to challenge yeah. myself. I found violins, in my mind, seemed like the pinnacle of difficulty. Don't know if it is. I don't think it is. Uh, I've since found plenty of things as hard, maybe not as as recognizable. A violin's pretty recognizable. You know, yeah. they, people kind of... It's a good way to pad your resume, yeah. you know, to do something that is in people's mind, you know, as a, as something. Stradivarius made it something, yeah. you know. Otherwise, it's just an, another guitar, right, <laughs> you know. Right, right. <laughs> There's yeah. plenty of stringed instruments out there. Stradivarius made it something. Yeah, yeah. How often do you confer with other woodworkers and, like, you know, what, what, what's a community look like? I don't know. I, I was part of a wood turning association. I gave a a lecture once. It seemed to me like don't take this the wrong way, but it, like it was slowing me down. Maybe too much communication with some of those members for like one week that I was interested in it. And then I got a project or two to do and it just kind of didn't seem important to do that. Yeah. anymore each project kind of pushes you in a new direction and i seldom turn one down yeah so so I'd, for you it's a pretty solo activity you know, oh it's very solo yeah yeah, yeah yeah and i don't know if it has to be that way mm -hmm. but economically it makes sense yeah and you really the whole solution to woodworking is own your supply you know, if you're going to work in birch, own the birch before all the way to the tree. Yeah. You know, that is the secret. Any successful woodworker has to own his supply. Now, it's really difficult to do if you're, if you're making cabinets. You know, everything's plywood or MDF. How do you own that supply? Yeah. I don't know. That market's real competitive. I, I don't get into that market. I, I'm, I'm lucky in respect that I focus on artisans that are known artisans. Not much of a name dropper, but there's a, a handful of artists that I like almost everything they make. Yeah. And since it's four or five artists, that's four or five lifetimes of their work that I still have to make. Yeah, yeah. And I know this is not really your domain specifically, but I was curious about how you kind of view what's going on with the trades specifically in the U.S. You know, there's, there's some, I would say, at least working in public schools, you know, there's a big push to push kids into college, you know, even if they're, you know, itching to get out there and build stuff and make mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this kind of desire to push them towards abstract knowledge as a pursuit. I, th I think it's a, a crystal ball, really. You know, what is the next thing you know we're all waiting to see what ai is going to bring yeah. you know people keep threatening the downside but we know that's not the only side yeah you know uh, cars brought a lot of stuff it wasn't just the downside of killing 80 million people since they've been around yeah you know it's gonna it's gonna depend on each individual's ability to to find themselves doing what they want to do really that is the key to my understanding of any pursuit is just 
just give it a try. You know, I've always made a living off my hobbies. And every time I got into a hobby, I always, in my peripheral vision, always saw the other people that were making a living off of that hobby and what they were doing and tried to steer my work towards a commercial value. And not everything suits you. Like, I did gemstone work for a while, and that market is really full of ties. (laughs) You know, the Thai uh, and Asian... Vietnamese and Cambodia, all around in that peninsula there, that, that area is really a gem central. And they, there's nothing they can't do. They, they got rubies and sapphires and, and jade and, and who knows what else uh, over there. And when I was over there, and gold, it, when I was over there, it was just store after store with rubies that are cut and it's just a pile of them. I, I couldn't believe the sheer volume. You know, like a one-pound coffee can full of one grade and then another grade just right next to it. Like 20 coffee cans full of polished rubies in each of these little, you know, or they're in little paper and there's 50 of them in each little paper thing and they've got a hundred of these things. You know, wow. you, you can tell that, that wherever they were sourcing them, it was right there. Because they were the first retailer, and I couldn't Just tell if prices were good. Stalls, and yeah, can, coffee cans of gems. That's incredible. You know, I mean, they had them displayed in the typical way that a jewelry store would, but behind the scenes, it's just it's just buckets of rocks. Yeah, and the gold was amazing. It was all twenty-four karat. I mean. You couldn't wear it. It would fall apart on you. Stick your hand in your pocket. It would just break, you know. I, I want to ask you about wood now because yeah, right. this is, this is, I love so much of your work that I've gotten to see and now I'm seeing in person. What do you like about the color of black walnut? I'm not sure it's the color that attracts me to it, although it, it is it is at the extreme, isn't it? Yeah. It's right there without needing stain and hard but not so hard that it's brittle. And it comes in colors, you know, a bastone walnut's kind of buttery, got a big sapwood sometimes, and and Midwestern walnut has got lots of rusty red hues to it, and Claro walnut of West Coast has got every color you can imagine. I like walnut the best. I've used sycamore, I'm sitting at a sycamore table. It has value, but it doesn't have the the following. There was no George Nakashima of Sycamore. Yeah. George Nakashima did everything in Black Walnut. Yeah. And he did it on the East Coast. Well, not everything, but 90%. And some people argue maybe there's other pieces that I haven't viewed. And I'm, I'm sure that I'm not a authority on his work, but I have made more of his pieces than any other artist. And I just... Every time that I get finished with a piece and I'm looking for something to make, I thumb through the things that are the screenshots in my phone, and I, I, I catch myself looking at the stuff that I captured from George Nakashima. So black walnut is, it's the well, it's the one they could pull out of the river, isn't it? Every winter you can see it's a single switch. And it has a single tap root, so you can walk along the creek catching crawdads. You see a black walnut tree, you can take it home with you in your pocket. <laughs> and that's how they got everywhere in these farmhouses. Yeah. And they live so long that every one of them has had a for sale sign attached to the tree. And, you know, a tree that lives for 100 years can have a tree house with every generation of people. And those nails, once you drive a nail in a green tree or any tree, you can't get them back up. Because yeah. it... It fills the space that the t- fibers need to flex to get out. And so you can't get it back up. So everything that I cut, tons of metal. I don't even use a metal detector anymore. I just listen to the saw. And when it makes a certain sound, I can just about estimate how many teeth it tore up on my chain. Wow. <laughs> when you're working with it and you encounter knots, how, how do you approach that? I'm curious. In the finished work, you won't find many knots in black walnut. Yeah because I, I mainly go for the log, not much for the anything below 15 inches. So 
not many limbs coming off laterally off of the pieces I use. And the knots that I do have aren't loose knots. So there's, they're not coming out like pine does. They don't separate. And one of the things that the knots do is they'll, they'll crack. They'll get a little star crack in there. And I fill that with coffee and resin, five-minute resin. So it's not an issue. Can you explain what sapwood is? I really didn't understand yeah. this distinction yeah. when I was looking into this. Yeah. Sapwood is that on black walnut, you can see it on the edge of the, the slab, the sides that were covered in bark. That part right under the bark until it turns dark, everything between the bark and the dark heartwood is called sapwood. Okay. And so in some walnut trees, it's a narrow band. And in some walnut trees, it's a great big thick band, but it's yellow. And sometimes it ages and it, it turns to an amber color. And sometimes it'll just kind of stay yellow. But if you're going to dry wood, you're going to cut wood, you need to spray that sapwood with boron. Okay. Boron salts. Boracare is a good product for that. Okay. You just spray it on after you cut it and sticker it, and it'll do the rest until it's dry. Three and a, I, I dry mine a, a year per inch thickness. Okay. Probably the most interesting thing for me by far in all of this was learning about steaming wood in order to bend it. It, it was so fascinating. Can you kind of explain what that process is for people that don't work with wood or, or people that maybe are not familiar with how you bend wood using yeah, steam? Yeah, steam bending is, is quite a, a demand. There's a demand for bent wood. You know, the staircase rails all have to be bent yeah. or cut. And if it's oak or whatever kind of species it is, one of the ways they do that is to make small thicknesses and say eighth inch or quarter inch or half inch. And the thicker the material, the more heat and more pressure is required once you take it out of the heat and put it into the clamp. Yeah. So there's a process. You, you estimate how thick the board has to be for the amount of curve that you're trying to get. And you can usually get maybe 20 degrees more for a, say, an eighth inch piece of walnut that's an inch wide without any heating or steaming at all. I can take an eighth inch piece of wood and I can turn it 45 degrees without breaking it. But what I have to use is the violin bending iron. The violin bending iron is a, a thermostatic controlled aluminum rod and it has particular curves on it and it gets to a particular temperature according to how you set it and there's so just enough water say six percent water in that little piece of a walnut i can bend it 45 degrees by putting it on this bending iron and moving it enough so that i can feel it start to go and then when it starts to go i just pull it over yeah and that's where it'll stay once it's and you can't bend it twice because you've taken the moisture out of it and so when you incorporate moisture into the wood, you can bend it even more. But that was just with the amount of moisture that the wood had in it initially. Okay. So for, say, a, a one-inch thick piece of wood, you're going to have to steam that until it gets hot all the way through. And then uh, you're going to have to put it in tremendous pressure, and you won't be able to take a very sharp curve. You may so get, the learning curve on this is pretty, is it pretty high? Or do there's got to be some books or something on it yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. For I'm you, certain. what was the learning curve like? Well, I just kind of jump into the ditch i don't yeah. i don't really hate the learning curve I, I kind of respect it yeah i never take anyone else's opus lightly yeah. because i have made 50 or 100 projects that i was trying to make the opus yeah. and by underestimating their work you'll find yourself wasting a lot of material because you'll start noticing the slightest little thing after you've already done something that you can't come back from mm. yeah <laughs> so having my own supply of wood makes it possible for me to not care about not knowing the math yeah do you like oil finishes on walnut I do. Okay. I Why do. do you like them? Because a typical homeowner can repair it themselves. Yeah. There's no spray gun needed. You just find a way to get it on and find a way to rub it off. You know, wipe it till it's dry. That's it. Do you find you get a better finish if you use your hand to finish the wood as opposed to using a machine? Well, I have a specific method to my madness. 
I use start off with a, a chainsaw and I end up with a feather. You know, th- th- you you just go to the extreme. So what I mean is, I have a chainsaw sawmill. Those chainsaw marks are on my board first, and the board is three and a half inches. So I have to put it through machine a little router that surfaces and bring it to the thickness I want. There, router marks exist. I take it to the stroke sander, use 50 grit, remove the router marks, change belts to the 80 grit, get rid of the 50 grit marks, most of them. Change to the 220 grit, get rid of the 80 grit marks, and then I start doing the handwork. Go back to 180, because 180 will take off the 50 grit marks that the 80 missed. And you can't take off 50 grit marks with 220. The first time you try, you'll waste your 220 pad. But at 180 will go a little further. But it still means you have to go across the whole board with 180 <coughs> on a, a, a hand sander. And I don't do it on a vibrating sander. You know, it looks like a vibrating sander, yeah. but it's a Rotex. It's oh, not, okay. it's not sa- vibrating. It's grinding. Mm. And the trick here is to hold it flat. And you learn what flat is by looking at your finish if you didn't hold it flat. Afterwards, your finish is like a, a dental rinse. Something people say about black walnut is that the, sometimes the color can change and get too yellow or kind of like this, I don't know what they, honey gold or orange honey. Mm-hmm, is that mm-hmm. something that is just inevitable? Yeah, uh, yeah, and it so, is. And so it's just yeah. kind of like part yeah. of the uh, life cycle yes. of the walnut, if you Yeah, and, and it's really a lot worse if you don't use the oil finishes. Yeah. Because okay. all of those clear finishes, they yellow. Yeah. You know, I've used resin finishes and shellac and poly finishes, all of them yellow. Huh. And so, yeah, it, w- it will it eventually. There's no way around it, really. Yeah, it's Appreciate called oxidation. It. You Appreciating know? it for what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. You won't notice it, though, yeah. because you, you're loving it from day one until it gets injured. And then when you get it resanded, it's like it's brand new again. Yeah. So you'll just like it every moment. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I want to ask you about a couple of your pieces that really kind of spoke to me. The one, funny enough, is the one directly behind you, the bench right back there. Uh, And I, is it Avodire? Is that how you say it? Avodar. Avodar. I I wasn't familiar. I haven't heard of that before. Um, What was? It's real easy to say. Think of it like this. B-I-R-C-H. Birch? Yeah, it's Birch. Oh, it's Birch. Okay. Yeah. So it's a different name for it. Well, I have found a company. I have found a company that utilizes birch in their veneer process that have a a way to make it look like almost any other wood, and it goes all the way through the wood to the backer. And so this is Avidar because it's been machined to be Avidar. Yeah, that way no Avidar trees were killed in the process. No ebony was killed in its sister across the hall there. So what was the process of the of the curve at the at the back there? This whole piece was inspired by a show called The Flight Attendant. I did watch, I watched that, yeah. Yeah, in that, in one of the early episodes, there was a scene where it was a a one-room apartment, a real expensive apartment. (coughs) It had an odd restroom, if you you remember. The restroom, the shower, was in the middle of the room. And it had three glass walls, you could see everything. Yeah. And through that shower, against the wall, was this curly bench. Yeah. And it was orange in that shot, and it had some towels hanging above it. Yeah. So I, I thought, wow, that is a cool bench. And I stopped the movie and took a picture, and that's what I made it from. Was it complicated? That, that, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Can, yeah. You, can you talk to me about it? I'm, I'm just, yeah. I, it's, it's almost like optical illusions that you see online, and you're trying to understand how it makes sense for your brain, and maybe it doesn't. Uh, yeah. Can you explain it? Yeah. It kind of starts at one end, okay. and then it does a, a loop, and, and a half loop, and it comes out at the other end, and none of those touch the main frame. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do is you have to build, to make the actual main frame of the bench, you, you get some bendy wood. It's three-eighths inch plywood. Two of the panels are, is a three-piece three sheet of plywood. Two of them run one direction and one runs the other direction so that it bends this, this direction. Or if you get it laid up like this, it bends this direction. I so see. I had it laid up so it was, it was bending in the long direction. So what I did is I made two forms so that I could do the two ends okay. and a lot of clamping holes because you're going to have a lot of pressure. And then I, I, I started cutting material. And 
I, I used uh, a lot of resin. I, I used $1,000 worth of resin on this piece. You know, before it was $600 uh, a thing uh, for two gallons. And it's five-minute resin because I, I like to keep working all day. And that's the expensive stuff. Yeah. So I just curled them around the form and clamped them, the first one, and I stapled it on as to the form. Okay. And then I put glue on top of that and put the next piece over. And I made all the pieces larger, longer, but not larger, wider, so they fit on the, on the mold. And then each day I would put on another piece. And so after six days or so, I had this nice build. And then I had a tremendous amount of sanding to do to get them to both look alike. And then I had to make a straight cut on both bottom and top in order so I could join it to a, a, a similar thing that I had done with straight plywood without for the seat bench because you don't want wiggly plywood on the seat bench. Yeah. And so I had a, a similar build on the seat bench. And on the, the curve, you have to put in all kinds of little stops and kind of a, a little block here and there when you're bending the first sheet. And you have to remember that if it's on the outside over here, it's gonna be the inside over here. So you have to put a lot of extra room on your blocks, otherwise it's gonna end up being into your work. Mm. And so, and then after you get the twist made, you have to join it to the piece. And so there's an angle under there. You have to join the two together. And it, it, one is narrower than the other. You see the twist that goes around is a different width than the seat. I see. And so in order to accomplish those two joinings, you wouldn't think that you could join a wide one and a narrow one together, but you can if you turn them both at an angle. If you cut the wide one at an angle and cut the narrow one at an angle, it goes around. And then you'd have to use biscuits. I, I, I used a, a domino to join everything together. Everything's got great big ass dominoes in there. Wow. And that was when I got my domino, my big domino. I have two dominoes. I have the little one and the big domino, Festool domino. Man, those are, that changed the way you, you, you fret about woodworking. I, I, don't, I don't fret mortise and tenons anymore. Mm. I mean, I still like to do mortise and tenons because yeah. it's a nice, uh, it's a nice joinery method, but not everything has to be that way. Mm. So many of your pieces have a lot of idiosyncrasy to them, but then there's other pieces like your conoid chairs. Conoid chairs. Conoid chairs. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the, how the creative process differs when you're creating something where you want some uniformity with other you know, pieces? So like you, know, you have a series of chairs and you want them to look similar versus a standalone piece where oh, it's unique. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. can you talk about your creative process, how it differs between those? Yeah, I, I put off building conoid chairs for a long time. Nakashima was my idol, George Nakashima. I mean, the conoid chair mystified me until I actually started looking at the picture when I was getting ready to make it. And once I started looking at it, it demystified itself. It's brilliant how he designed that joint for the seat. And it's the same joint for the legs that join the floor piece to the, the main riser. And so there's really only two joints in there. And one is a, a triple-sided inlay with a removal of an overlapping piece. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is, in order to make one chair first, it took me three or four back tries to get the angle and right. Mind you, I'm only working from a picture, yeah. scaling. So chairs are one of those things you have to get humble because they'll humble you. You're working with, it seems like small pieces of wood, but in order to get strong parts, they have to be defect-free. Yeah. And defect-free in Clara Walnut is pretty hard to come by. And so it used more wood than I expected it to. Yeah. And it was one of those things I had to, once I had discovered the angles for the first chair, I took it apart and made every one, every piece of pattern. I made little quarter inch patterns for every single piece. Oh, I see. So you build it as a piece and then you deconstruct it yeah. to kind of abstract it. Yeah, I, I okay. built the, the chair 
like four different back tries to get the uh, angle right and to make everything fit nice and tight. You know, the first thing you can do is you can slop it together. You don't have to be how, you know, matter how careful you are in the first one because it's not the last one. <laughs> it's not, you know, what's going to see it, but you. And so I was at a place where I thought I could just make my scrap one out of walnut. I, I was hubris. You know, I, I, I thought I was better than I was. And I ended up wasting some material. But when you have a sawmill, who cares? Yeah. You know, you, you get your material so cheap because you're willing to wait three and a half years for it to dry. Yeah. And you're willing to spend money on these lugs, you know, thousands of dollars on these lugs for yourself for later and to get all of those chairs to be sellable i have 18 of them to get them all sellable i still want to run them through my shop and put the lipstick on them one time and i actually had a couple of people want to buy them but when they hear the price they, nobody wants to spend 1800 dollars for a chair uh, maybe they do but not for me not just yet so we'll see i know george's work sell for much higher than that right not sure he did it any better than I do at this point. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll we'll come back to uh, our culture's obsession with uh, cheap, uh, mass-produced things. Um, we'll come back to that in a second. But I, um, a few years ago, I was trying to um, put some new um, window frames in my house, and my wife's uh, uncle is a woodworker, and he came over and he gave me some hand tools really pissed me off <laughs> working with some of those hand tools. Yeah, there's a learning curve. Yeah, that. and I... And skin. You pay in skin. I wonder just, you know, because there's this drive for efficiency and technology and using electronic things. Does, do hand tools have a future? Yeah, for okay. sure. Okay. For sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a Japanese pull saw. It's a hand tool. Yeah. I, I probably wear two of those out a year. I don't buy expensive ones because I'm impatient and I bend them. And once they're bent, they're less useful. Yeah. And I get like the really thin ones. And so they're easy to bend mm. because they make a nice flat cut. You can you hardly have, there, there's no teeth really sticking left and right yeah. like an American saw. They're not really set. They're just kind of really sharp. Mm -hmm. I never pick one up without putting gloves on. Mm. I've hurt myself more with that saw than almost any other tool. And it's because it goes through things so fast that you're still forcing it when it gets through. And if anything is in the way, the teeth are just brutal. Mm. Well, I, I like to I like to break bake sourdough bread, and sometimes, you know, you'll be cutting it, and you'll see someone that maybe doesn't understand how to use the knife, and then they'll be pressing the bread down from the top. Get a Ginsu, you know? man. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I have to remind them that... Sorry. No, you're okay. I have to remind them that you got to let the knife do the work. You know, it's not... The, the knife doesn't need pressure. Yeah. I'm assuming it's sharp enough. It yeah. doesn't need pressure. Yeah. You let the tool do the work. But I, I, I brought up the hand tool thing because I, you know, I, I, I do wonder, and I don't know if this becomes... This is coming from me being annoyed with my wife's uncle for what he gave me, but is it just that there's a virtue in something that's analog or is there a real necessity sometimes for hand tools you know there's every kind of personality yeah. in everything i can't really get on the side of those sharpening posers mm -hmm. you know there's some sharpening snobs out there yeah. sure there's good ways to sharpen but you really must understand that the end goal here is to make something not just sharp tools and just because you can sharpen doesn't mean you're going to make anything good. It's safer to have sharp tools than dull tools. My dad was a meat cutter. and Sharpest knives, I'm sure. Sharpest knives are the safest knives, less yeah. pressure on the knife. Yeah. And it, was, it always makes sense to, to have a backup plan. You know, I have screwdrivers, even though I have electric drill. Yeah. I, ha I still have a library card, e even though I have the internet. You know, there's something to be said about when the power goes out and you want to keep working, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, how deep you get involved with posing while doing woodworking shows in your output. Yeah. You know, 
I make something about every four days when I'm not sidelined for a hernia or whatever. And that's not a badge of honor. That's just throughput. You know, I think critically about each piece. Sometimes you don't have to think as critically as others because it's something you've done before. You know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel each time. But if you don't make something and then for say four or five years and then somebody asks for another one of those, you're reinventing the wheel because there's no way you can remember all the specifics on everything. Like for me, it's putting drawer glides in and hanging doors, those wonderful glides that and door hinges and stuff that they have now. I, I love the bloom glides that self-close. In fact, my kitchen, I have, you touch the door and it has servos in the back, it opens the door for you. But I don't do that in my furniture. But I, I do like the bloom glides and those self-closing mechanisms for their, for their doors. It's just that I have to go over that learning curve every time because most of the work I do doesn't have a drawer and it doesn't have a door. I mean, I do dining room tables, chairs, coffee tables. And it's, the, it's my urge to do more that is leading me to develop these new skills that I have to have. I don't do those things, <coughs> excuse me, very well because I don't do them very often. But if I did them more often, I wouldn't mind doing them. You know, it, yeah. it's, a, it's a cart before the horse thing. Sometimes you, you don't need a skill, so you don't learn it. And I really am embarrassed about my dovetails or lack thereof for drawers. But for me, it just seems like a big time waster because I'm so poor at it. You know, if, if I took a, if I took a interest in doing those, I'm certain I'd figure it out with one or two videos. Yeah. You know, online learning is my key yeah. because didactic is the only way to learn for me. Yeah. You're motivated and nothing's gonna stand between you and that knowledge. Right, when I'm trying to fix something in my plumbing and I have a drive, yes, you know, yes. and I'm on YouTube. And I'm you have a way learn, forward. And you have a way forward. Yes, and all yes. it takes is a step forward. Yeah. And that's what I tell everyone is woodworking is just one step. You can only work on one step at a time. Now, I, when I was building violins, I built three at once because it takes glue to, time to dry. And you're using hide glue on violins and it can dry in 30 minutes. And so by the time you get done with one operation, you set that one aside, it's time to do the exact same operation here. Do you think you got better, learned anything from the first one? Of course, of course. And by the time I had made 30 or so violins, I went back and decided to make all the ones I had made previously better. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, everyone hates their early work. My early work, I would put an ad in Craigslist and tell somebody they could have a piece for a dollar. And I made sure to get my dollar by the end because it was the, it was still selling my work. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel the no same one way. bitches same about way. getting anything for a dollar. <laughs> I feel and the same this, way. This one guy called, he said, make sure you call me next time you want to get rid of a piece. I think his name was Robert. He says, I'll take any one of them for a dollar. Cause he knew what I was building towards. Yeah. yeah. And, I emptied my house out three times. I filled it, emptied it, filled it, emptied it because I was getting better and I tried different genres. I did ball and claw legs and. What do you feel like when you let go of a piece? Like, does it feel like a sense of loss? Or oh yeah. Like, oh yeah. Like, yeah. 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 You can't think about it. Yeah. In fact, it it doesn't really bother me anymore. Yeah. It used to. Yeah. The early pieces bothered me a lot, as long as they went to someplace favorable, I don't care. Yeah. You know, because I'm having trouble storing this stuff. You know, one of the problems with making something every four days is you got to find a place to put that. Yeah. And if I'm not working for a client, it's a spec piece. And you'll see what I have. I'll show you yeah. before you leave. Yeah. I've got two vans full, uh, 
28-foot vans, diesel truck vans, yeah. and 2,000-square-foot warehouse that's almost got no room to work for me. And my house has 50 different projects in it. And so I'm contemplating building another house back there just for maybe just for storage, just to have a showroom, you know, or a steel building or something with a mezzanine because I, I need floor space, you know. And wow. you can't stick it out in the weather no. because even in a, one of those truck bodies, it's at the weather's mercy, you know. And everything that I have, I have to do it twice. You know, I make it, and then it sits, if it's a spec piece, and if it sits in a container, you know, it's getting weathered. And somebody sees it and they want it, I have to look at it and go, oh, now how do I make you new again? You know, sometimes it's, it's a hassle, you know. And I use oil finish, you know, for everything. And in a, in a, a shop where everything is coming out sawdust, oil and sawdust, you know, it, everything gets taller. Spans. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. dust, it just yeah. accumulates on everything. <laughs> and so if someone comes over, I have to put the lipstick on these tables before they come over. And then I'm juggling tables, so everything's getting abrased from the piece sitting next to it, you know, inadvertent. And I, then I, I have to look at those scratches. They go, ah, I got to resand that down to nothing again. You know, each time it, it requires abrasives and finish and time. And I'm doing this on almost every piece. So I'm doing them twice. You know, that's that's a juggling act. Yeah, it's just a constant. Yeah, because starting, stopping, redoing. Because I'm too prolific. Yeah, but I'm old. I'm not going to do that forever. So yeah. live with it. Yeah, you know, I, I'm just going to keep cranking them out. Well, and I think I think this is true. Having studied art history, you know, there are periods in all great artists' lives where they are just just churning out, just churning out art, and it's like an explosion and. That feels like what's it, what's going on with you at the moment. I, I do want to ask you a couple things about Fresno. This is a Fresno podcast. Can you talk to me about how you acquire your wood? You kind of have hinted at this throughout. Yeah. Can you talk yeah. to me about that process? Yeah. Wood can be secured through urban salvage, and it requires some footwork. So you got to have some things in order to get your own supply. you got to have a place to cut it. Yeah. I have two and a half acres here, good neighbors. I farm those neighbors. <laughs> I cultivate them. Yeah. So they're not saying anything. One's my daughter, one's an open field, and the other one's five acres away, and the other one, I bought his road. So <laughs> That's a great way to start. And so there's a barrier to entry to do what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, I can give away all my tips and have no fear that anyone's going to jump in. That barrier is economic. I have a sawmill. Uh, sawmill, I got it used, and it, it suits my purposes because uh, I don't use it very often. It's kind of like it's running 10 hours a, every year, 10 hours. And the rest of the time is sitting there at the elements, mercy. Yeah. I have one guy who comes in and does my sawing. That's all he does. And I pay him $200 a day, no matter if he's there 10 minutes or two hours. And he's a two-hour man. He doesn't stay very long. He's old like I am. And, but he knows that machine, and he likes doing it. Yeah. And so I would have to find someone else if he falls out on me to yeah. do that job because I'm not going to do it anymore. It's too hard for me. You know, it's a, it's a lot of work. But you have to have a place to do it. you got to get, get your own supply, so you're going to have to have a sawmill of some kind. You can start off with an Alaskan mill. I have two, and they're require two people most of the time. I don't have two people. My wife is a housekeeper here. She does uh, her thing in the house and she does yoga and and swims five days a week and takes care of me, you know. So we take care of each other. I do the outside stuff, she does the inside stuff. And so you need help. You know, yeah. she does the books and she does a, a lot of stuff. Anything I don't want to do, if I need to track down parts for something, yeah. she can be doing that while I'm still working. Yeah. What are your typical customers like? 
beyond the guy that got the one dollar pieces. You know, yeah, more tip, more recent. I say they're between thirty and seventy. Big range. Uh huh. Mostly women. Okay. What attracts 30, them to your 30%, work? Yeah. I guess is another way. Of, what What do you think it is? Is there a lot of communication with them? I think they see before before the last nine weeks. Now before I was heading to <laughs> stardom. <laughs> That's so funny. It was. Probably, I would sell one every couple of months, one table. Yeah. And most of them found me on Google. Yeah. They would search out woodworkers in my area. And I, I guess there isn't very many people doing what I'm doing. Well, I, can say, I can say that with some certainty, that there's not at least at yeah. this level of the craftsmanship that you're incorporating in your pieces. At any level. I don't yeah. think anybody else is doing black walnut. Yeah. I mean... I have had one or two people try to take the black walnut market. You know, they'll oh, try really? to capture the market and cut all the wood and and try to outcompete me in selling slabs. But I really don't sell slabs anymore. Yeah. I just sell finished goods. And they couldn't do the finished goods, and the slabs, slabs quit selling. Mm. So they kind of got stuck with their stuff. And they've tried to sell it to me a couple of times at inflated prices, and I'm just not buying it. You know, it's not the sizes I would want, and it didn't cut it to the thicknesses I use. And you know, sawing—you can't just saw for somebody unless you've got a client that tells you what thickness they want. You got to saw for yourself. Yeah, let's imagine—and this is very hypothetical. Let's imagine Fresno Unified called you and said, you know. We really want to develop a woodworking course for our students, you know, some of our best students, the ones that want to work with their hands, that want to make art with wood. What, what, what would you start with? Where would you begin? I would begin with art classes and design. Yeah. Because really, art and design came late for me. That's why I built three houses full of furniture and had to give them away for a dollar before I figured out it was design, 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 you know. Before those designers got involved in my woodworking life, I was building what I wanted, and I didn't know what I wanted. I just liked all kinds of stuff, and there was no money in that stuff. There was no market demand. And China has filled that niche. You have to, there's, what's selling right now is novelty. Yeah. Novelty is always uh, interest to humans. We, we want to be surprised and stimulated, and novelty does that. So by, by starting with design and art, in some ways, kind of you're wanting students to develop a sense of taste. Almost. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yes. I feel like that's lost in a lot of ways. This kind of, or at least we don't reflect on it in a kind of metacognitive way of saying, like, what is taste? How do we develop that? Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't know if that's just the flattening of our culture in some ways. And you have to, you have to seek it out. All, all of these designs, you have. Eventually, if you're going to work in a medium, you're going to get bored. You know, you got to work around the edges to find creativity again. Yeah. And in doing that, you're going to come across others that have had creative gas. You know, they've, they've got a full tank. Yeah. And all you got to do is make what they're making. Yeah. Better. Well, I do the better. Same, I do the a same better thing. wood. I do the same thing with this podcast. Like, there's a few shows that are just, it's a, a, you know, they're, I listen to them every week and I ingest them yeah. like, like yeah. a, you know, well rounded meal. You know, like it's yeah. for me and it's like nourishing, but it's also, it sends me somewhere. It does. I get sent by art, I feel yes. like sometimes. Yes. Yeah. It, it grabs you, mm. it moves you around in your space. Yeah. And if, for me, you can see there's not much tchotchkes on, on my shelves. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a lot well, of Harry tchotchkes. Potter up there. I yeah, see, I see that's that. my wife. Yeah, she was Wiccan for a while, but that passed. And those are still hold a spot in, in yeah. our history. Yeah. And so that has all the crystals and spells and stuff in this case that I, I made for her, this box. And that's where everything lives. Hmm. I guess it's esoteric that the wood that I used to make it was cognac vats. And so it kind of smells like cognac when you open the box. <laughs> that sounds like it would be a wonderful smell. All right, I've got two more questions before you before we finish with a book recommendation. Do you think there's a difference between knowing and doing for you? I don't know what you're referring to, really. Well, 
So when you're building something, there's a knowing that's coming through the doing. And I think in our dualist culture, we can separate the thought and the act. But it seems like in the work you do, those are kind of they're bonded. They're bonded. Yeah. In, in some way. So I, yeah. I guess I was curious to have you reflect on that a little bit. My whole day is taken up by don't hurt yourself. Yeah. You know, that is my mantra. Don't hurt yourself today. This is not a good day for the VA to see you in the emergency room. You know, this is uh, one of the hazards of being in the professions, uh, any of the trades, is you're probably not going to hurt yourself at a keyboard, but at a table saw there is great threat, or a bandsaw. One of the main things I can tell you is take your damn gloves off before you use a saw, you know, because it, all it's got to do is catch one of those little fibers and it sucks your hand in. Even if you were smart enough to keep your hand away, maybe the fiber just reels you in like a fish. I, I'll be honest. I'm mortally afraid of table saws. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. it still terrifies me just yeah. seeing them. Yeah, and, and get a stop saw. Don't just get any old table saw. Get one that if it hits your cheese, it stops, and you don't have to worry about finding replacement parts for your hands. You yeah. Know. yeah. I'm a librarian now, but yeah. I was a teacher for a decade. I taught in classrooms kind of across California and I think what you do kind of makes who you are in some ways mm. and I was made into a certain kind of person by having to teach other people's children what kind of person do you think woodworking has made you into maybe it's made me a little more patient you know I, I've always been quick Keith you know that's what my wife's mother coined me quick Keith I think if you move too fast you make a lot of mistakes, and you risk personal injury. The best thing you can do is know first, and then find out later if it's true. Verify with the actual work and see if what you learned is pertinent. Because you're always going to learn more through books than you can learn through work. Because you can read, and you can't move that fast. But your mind can move really fast. Yeah. And so it's better to have a, a good framework for, for anything. You know, you, you can't play chess without knowing which way the men, men move. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, each, each tool requires a, a level of expertise that you'll get. And you learn which end bites. And you learn where the danger is. And it may be obvious. And it isn't always. I've been hurt more by a sander than anything else because my sanders really get going and they're not all controllable by my hands. Sometimes the work gets pushed against the sander and the sander doesn't get pushed against the work. And the work can take off flying and sometimes it leaves you to deal with the sander while the work goes away. The sander's still at play. So... Real important to know when to wear the gloves. Always wear the gloves on the sanders. Never wear the gloves on the cutters. I want to close with books. Um, do you yeah. have a book recommendation for listeners? Yeah. Understanding wood. That is a lot of good glossy pictures and really good descriptions about the physiology of a tree and helps you make choices about what thicknesses to cut stuff because you know their drying rate yeah. and you know what's in your area. And you learn that there are several kinds of cuts that you can get from a tree. There's rift cuts, flat cuts, quarter sawn. You know, there's a lot more going on there than you you really know, especially if you're a neophyte. Like, I consider myself uh, a neophyte in almost everything. I know a little about a lot of things, but not a lot about anything. It's a good way to go through life, just filling up your basket with knowledge. You know, yeah. just keep adding. You, it doesn't matter what you forget. Yeah. What matters is what you're able to use. Yeah. It, knowledge not being used is less valuable. Yeah. It's just a conversation stuff then. Then it's just showing off. You got to use it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, 
I really appreciate you doing this with me. And I'm curious, what, what are you working on next? I have just recently, uh, I met a guy that likes the work. And first he had me make him a California king bed and a headboard. And then a set of benches for this table. Oh, and I surfaced his table. And he wants two hanging nightstands because the, the headboard that I made is a hanging headboard. It hangs on the wall. And so these would be hanging nightstands that hang beside the bed as well. And then also four bar stools. So I'm, I'm turning legs out there. These are 33 inch legs. They're really long. I had to buy an extension for my lathe to turn 33 inch legs. Turning is, is fun, but it's nerve wracking. It's yeah. like chess. You can only play a couple of games before you're just defeated. You have to recharge. So I'm gonna make these things like one three-legged thing at a time. So they're three-legged bar stools. So it, it's it's what I'm currently working on. It's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And so to find your work, they can go to your website, which is keithnewton.com, and then also your Instagram handle, which we will link at the bottom of the show notes. Thanks again, Keith. I really appreciate it. You bet. Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.